Hello and welcome to part one of the Miyazaki Countdown from Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by the Countdown crew, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today we begin our latest Countdown series, and for the first time, we'll be focusing on the works of an international filmmaker. In this case, the legendary Japanese director and master of hand-drawn animation, Hayao Miyazaki. Today we'll be discussing Miyazaki's first directorial effort, the 1979 comedy Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. But first, how are you guys? Jay, we'll start with you. I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having me back. I think this is Countdown Series number five. I really should have had this uh, checked before we hopped on, but another countdown. Excited to be here. Coming off the heels of a big movie weekend in July. Number six, Scott Shelton is motioning to me. I'm not going to try to spell them all out right now. Excited to be here. Scott Shelton, how are you? Good. I had to do the mental the mental check on that. I uh, Star Wars, Nolan Fincher, Bond, Wes Anderson, and now Miyazaki. So I think I think that covers all the bases. But I'm good. I'm excited. I mean, I think we first started talking about potentially doing a Miyazaki countdown. I mean, two years ago. It's been a long time since we first bro- broached the idea. Obviously, we typically try to time these countdown series the best we can with a new movie. And uh, the boy and the heron sitting right there at the end of the, the end of the rainbow for us. So can't be more excited to be going through all these movies programmatically, but also get the pot at the end of the rainbow. Yeah, no, it's always nice to have something to work towards as we've had in all these series. Although sometimes it ends up throwing a wrench into the proceedings, of course, with the Wes Anderson series. Sure. Yep. Uh, when Asteroid City was was pushed, we ended up... Even Nolan became complicated with True. the pandemic and, and things like that. True. So. And of course, you know, this countdown idea that we have is certainly not an original idea. And perhaps the most famous... Uh, version of this is the blank check podcast with uh, with David Sims and Griffin Newman and we have uh, followed in their footsteps on a couple occasions now they they did Nolan very early on in the podcast life and they also um, have done Miyazaki so and they started um, with Star Wars so they did that's true yeah, yeah. so to, to be um, fair I don't think that their podcast premise is not to build up to a new movie though though is it, it I don't think it no is. it it, yeah. it is not we're going to get into the Studio Ghibli films, which is what he's most known for. But this first movie today, The Castle of Cagliostro, was prior to his creation of Studio Ghibli. But yeah, with that, guys, I think we could just get right into it. As mentioned, our film today is 1979's The Castle of Cagliostro. Adapted from the popular Lupin manga series, The Castle of Cagliostro centers on master thief Lupin and his sidekick Jigen, who, as the film opens, discover that the fruits of their latest heist are in fact counterfeit gothic bills, alleged to come from the Grand Duchy of Cagliostro. The duo heads to Cagliostro, where they soon encounter Clarice, the princess of Cagliostro, who is soon to marry the villainous Count, a man who Lupin has history with. After Lupin rescues Clarice from arm henchmen, she leaves him with a signet ring that, as it happens, is one half of the key that will cement the Count's marriage and unlock the famed treasure of Cagliostro. Pursued not only by count by the Count and his henchmen, but by Lupin's longtime nemesis, Inspector Zenigata, Lupin and Jigen find themselves in a race against the clock to rescue Clarice, keep the rings out of the Count's hands, escape their foes, and maybe discover the treasure along the way, too. Before we get into the film specifically, Jay, I'll start with you. What is your background with Miyazaki and what expectations, if any, did you have for this film? 
my background was fairly non-existent in that I, you know, before watching this first one, you virtually nothing about any of Miyazaki's projects. Uh, I definitely have been told to watch them since I was, uh, it's been at least a decade, uh, if not more. Uh, most recently, I was talking to someone over dinner about my AMC A-list subscription and uh, movies I was excited for this year. And the topic of Miyazaki came up. And when I said I hadn't seen anything, this person was like, how, have you, how do you call yourself a movie fan and you haven't seen any Miyazaki films? And I said, well, my two friends who you know have are dragging me more and more into the movie-verse are going to make me watch them all this year. So, uh, I mean, again, I've heard that they're pretty universally loved, but I, I literally could not tell you anything about them aside from maybe a few titles. Um, like Spirited Away is a name that's been thrown around a lot. Um, I'm sure there's a couple others that I would maybe just slightly botch, uh, but that's really about it. Yeah, and of course the thing is too that I mean I was in your shoes not so long ago, Jay, probably 2020, I guess is when I really dove in. That's because the Studio Ghibli films were very hard to come by in America for quite a long period of time, and then um, until HBO very- Max. As a part of HBO Max, they expensive acquisition by HBO Max. They acquired all of the the Studio Ghibli films for their service. And that was my gateway in having them all there. And, you know, again, it was during the pandemic. I was like, all right, I'm going to going to do this. I've seen most of them now. I think there's three that I lack um, that I'll get to, obviously, as part of this series Four, if you count this one, which I had not seen either. But um, Scott, as for you, of course, you're you're the biggest fan among all of us. Although I think this was the first time watch for you as well, correct? Correct. Yeah. This is this was pretty much. I think yeah. This is the only one I hadn't seen before at some point. Okay. So I had been begging you for several years yeah. before, you know, even probably since early on in the earliest days of this podcast to to watch the Jilly movies. And yeah, I mean, I was very pleased to see you pick up the pick up the the remote and then flip over to HBO Max in the pandemic and watch you know I think some of your favorite animated movies now. Yeah, yeah, I think we'll we'll definitely get to one or two of those uh during this series for sure. I just want to make sure we're aligned on which version of the movie we watched, which I think we all ended up watching the English dub, no subtitles. So, <laughs> oh, okay, see this is why we asked. We had this conversation because all the English dubs are quite good of the the at least the Ghibli the, at least the Ghibli yeah. movies are yeah. yeah and so you know we were saying that it was okay to watch the dubs or whatever and that is what I plan to do in the future the you rented the wrong one I, the website on which I was able to find this film to watch at no cost to me I should say um, did not have the dubbed version so I did watch with subtitles uh, I don't think it would probably make a huge difference in this case but going forward I think we'll, we'll all be watching the dubs once you get into the Ghibli films but Jay I'll throw it back to you now you know as for this film your first introduction to Miyazaki the, the world's first introduction to Miyazaki back in 1979 what did you think about the castle of Cagliostro general impressions separately I wrote down two to three of my favorite lines, which I thought there's no way this is actually what it was in the original, but I'm going to ask you about them either later in the episode, if it makes sense okay. or afterwards. I'll do my best to remember. If they were pretty absurd, but just coming back to my general impressions, you know, we talked a lot uh, in the last countdown about how it's really hard to do bad in under an hour 40. Right. And not only does that trend continue to hold, I actually thought this was pretty fun. Um, I think this is probably one of the longer 
times uh, it's been between me watching it, a movie, and then us recording it on the podcast. Uh, but I still have like found myself circling back to it. It's been a little over two weeks now. Like It was actually quite fun. Um, a super easy watch really just comes like out the gate swinging. And, you know, I, I will say the one other thing that maybe crossed my radar as I was preparing myself for this countdown was maybe this one isn't considered one of the better ones, but I still had a pretty good time. Um, I think people just don't talk about it because it's not a Studio Ghibli film, to be honest. I don't think it's like a better or worse thing. It's just people don't really talk about it. Sure. And I was just about to say that, and you know, you were specifically saying how the English dubs are from Studio Ghibli are the more renowned ones, et cetera. Um, But ultimately it was a lot of fun. Like I, you know, I I think I, I made clear in our conversations about dub versus sub, like I wasn't sure what would make more sense, but uh, I thought it carried a lot of charm. Um, it was really fun, like, you know, simple premise. Like I, how could you, I feel it simply put, I'm not sure how anyone could not enjoy watching that just for an hour 40 and nothing like life changing, but like fairly enjoyable. Scott, your thoughts on uh, your only Miyazaki blind spot. Yeah. I, look, I, I think one of the things that I saw you write in your review of of this film scott was it's miyazaki's bond i don't think i would have described it as miyazaki's bond movie personally i think i would have described it as like his mission impossible movie or something like that um but it, it is sort of that flavor and i think one of the things that i really took away from watching this movie on saturday morning i think is when i watched it i was like oh this is like it's like i'm watching saturday morning cartoons we're just having a good time leaning back on the couch this is like the the chillest hundred minutes of my day 36 hours after watching oppenheimer where I'm just having this existential dread about all life on earth and whether I, you know, we're all doomed. And now I'm just watching castle of Cagliostro and, you know, I'm seeing Lupin and, and uh, Jigen and going on just having a good time together. And I, I just think that it was just really easy to turn your brain off and watch. And I think that frankly, we don't really talk about that many movies, uh, especially not in the countdown series where you can just turn your brain off and watch them. I think that a lot of the directors and a lot of the film series, that we've done, you know, Nolan, Fincher, even Wes Anderson, like there are elements where you could turn your brain off and watch, but the filmmakers are often engaging you in a way that you kind of feel like you've leaned in a bit and you're, and you're locked into what's going on. And that's not to say that we all won't feel that way further down the countdown series as, as Miyazaki maybe explores deeper themes or uh, things like things of that nature, but it was really nice to just lean back and turn my brain off and just enjoy sort of the staging of a heist turn into like saving a princess to like also still a heist to evading the inspector who's chasing after me. Like it was just sort of like the perfect balance of hijinks and fun and none of it was very serious. And I think that was really refreshing. And so, yeah, I'd have a like, is this going to be one of my favorite Miyazaki movies? Almost certainly not, but I'd have a hard time like not recommending this movie to someone like I think pretty much anyone could pick this up, watch it and have a good time. Yeah. I mean, you know, bond mission impossible, whatever the comparison you want to make, it's those component parts are there. I think, um, you know, this movie is, it's a romp, right. Which sure. is not necessarily yeah. what you would associate Miyazaki with, but it is kind of, you know, you see a lot of directors animated or not right early in their careers. They make these genre movies before they, you know, get into the the meat of you know what they want to do before they get their blank checks perhaps and um 
they turn out to be kind of, you know, fascinating artifacts in a way. Um, when you look back at their career, you know, 20, 30 years later and whatnot. Um, sometimes it's horror movies. And, and in a case like this, it's, you know, an adventure movie, an action movie. This movie doesn't have the sort of emotional depth or complexity that we'll see with some of the other, a lot of the other Miyazaki movies. Um, but it definitely has the fun of, you know, some of his best works. Um, and yeah, I, I just enjoyed, you know, this the Lupin, I mentioned it's adapted from a manga, like, you know, there's a lot of Lupin stuff out there, right? Um, there's even a recent Netflix series, which I think you watched some of Scott, but um, <clears throat> regardless. That, 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 is that is an unrelated thing. If you want to get into the context of like the Lupin verse, there is this like gen like this series of novels in like early 1900s about this gentleman thief named Arsene Lupin, which is like what the manga is then based off. Yeah. And the TV show is based directly off of that, whereas the manga obviously takes a different skew. Different like, Goemon is like another like famous like old Japanese like literary figure, like the uh, the sort of like almost like Robin Hood ninja or like like person um, who sort of also has a character in this manga as well so there's like a lot of interesting like literary background that that this manga series like pulls together actually yeah and even just hearing that you know you might think that it it's going to be hard to access this if you have no prior knowledge of what lupin is or anything um but that isn't the case like i, I felt like i got right in i understood who all of the characters were and i was having fun just you know with the ensemble we're not you know not just Lupin and Jigen and their, you know, friendship and, and relationship they have, but some of the other side characters that pop up too, you know, you have like Fujiko, right, who is like the, has like this off and on like playful relationship with Lupin, it seems, um, and she's working on her own heist, right, she's working in the, in the castle, um, and, you know, she's the rival thief, yeah, yeah. Um, and while also trying to acquire the treasure. So that's a little, you know, piece that gets in the way. And I enjoy the sort of the cat and mouse game there. And then I mentioned, you know, Zinigata, for example, who was definitely one of my favorite characters in this, um, who was kind of the, the bumbling cop that is, you know, always one or two steps behind Lupin, it seems. Is it Lestrade, his... like the Sherlock detective? Yeah. Is it Lestrade? Yeah, well, is my comparison point for him yeah. is a more niche one, but, you know, maybe it was just the, the manga, you know, anime uh, connection, but Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, Detective Dick Gumshoe. Sure, sure, um, yeah. Who, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, is, is always around the corner for, for Phoenix Wright. That was kind of my comparison point there, but no, I, I thought it. he was a lot, a lot of fun, and, you know, they have a, a clear like hero villain, like, you know, they, they're friends sometimes when they need to be. And then, you know, but, but at the end of the day, one is still chasing the other. Um, and so I really liked the, the dynamic there. Um, yeah. It's just, it's just really fun. Um, you know, it, it has that sort of big ensemble again that you would associate with like the, you know, James Bond mission impossible spy movies and stuff like that. Um, but it also looks, you know, beautiful, which you expect from Miyazaki, of course. But even in 1979, you know, I can't imagine there was any animation or anything that looked as good as, I mean, even what Disney was doing, probably. Um, I mean, it's I all hand-drawn at that point, right? So yeah. Everything's like that, yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, maybe it's just, I'm sure we'll get into, like, conversations about animation styles over the course of this series, but 
maybe it's I'm just more drawn to this animation style ultimately. Um, I, think I think it's more timeless. Possible. I think it's very easy to say that it's more yeah. timeless than computer animation. Yeah, but it looks great. It holds up super well. The stunts and action and everything are really fun and fast and um, kinetic. Um, so can, can I, you I believe really... they made those little drawings jump those distances? The stunts <laughs> that they were doing were crazy. I think my favorite image is the like the water, the big water tank that's like or whatever it is where he's swimming upstream basically against oh, the yeah. Uh, yeah. against the the force of the water. Like I don't know, something about that image was like kind of mesmerizing to me yeah people tell um, me that tom cruise does crazy stuff in mission impossible movies but this guy's swimming upstream down yeah. a vertical drop so we're fine well, it did remind me of the uh the underwater dive sequence from uh, rogue nation of course but um not quite the same thing as you say there but yeah yeah i really really enjoyed this at the end of the day like you know it is what it is it's a you know adventure film um yeah but we've had that conversation recently scott uh when we watched indiana jones about like oh maybe this is like the a dead genre now like you know indiana jones is kind of our last hope um indiana jones the original raiders came out what like a year or two after this movie yeah 1981 i think i I think think it was 1981 yeah Yeah. um and so it was it was nice to watch this and be like man we, we really had it all guys we had it all back then um but i don't know if we'll see i mean you know we had something we'd have mission impossible i guess yes some things are better nowadays there's no denying that yeah. but, um i guess I'm we have sure mission scott impossible. shelton was making a movie point there but i digress <laughs> yeah i mean we well, even yes, had if we, had, if we had want to get into impossible some back in 1979 as well we had the tv the original tv, <laughs> the TV show yeah yeah well, look, uh, yes, if we want to get on a really high level and discuss, yeah. yes, there were a lot of things that were not better back then, but I don't yeah. think that's the Modern medicine might be slightly better. I'm not sure. Um, pivoting, guys. Um, yeah. Frankly, because I didn't watch the dub, I don't even know. Like, are there is there anyone notable in the voice cast for this? Uh, uh, no, 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 there's not. Well, uh, also, there's two different uh, dubs as well. There's one by screen music and one by animes. Uh, I believe that the version on Amazon Prime that they had was the 1992 screen music one. David Hayter, who is like a pretty famous voice actor in video games, is is the voice of Lupin in the animes, the 2000 animes dub, because I was looking it up afterwards. But I don't think there's really anyone that I'd ever heard of in the version of the dub that I watched. I'll throw it over to either one of y'all, you know, anything you want to say about the the voice cast here. Obviously, as we get deeper into the Ghibli films and the, you know, English dubs, you're going to hear some pretty famous names popping up. Um, But, you know, as far as the conversation we were having about dub versus sub, did you feel like um, everything was was good in translation, basically, and there was no um, sort of awkward moments or anything? I thought so. And, you know, this me just having like a stick up my butt. Like I have to be like, don't look too closely at their mouths because, of course, it doesn't move perfectly. Right. But like, I think perfectly with the Japanese either, though, I don't think. Does it? This is my thing with anime. I feel like they don't really ever do it perfectly with the Japanese either. I didn't really notice, I guess. I mean, in the, in the limited sub that I've watched, it, 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 it's better, but it, it better. wasn't bad. Like it wasn't okay. distracting. Again, maybe this is the moment now I can I can bring up my few lines because um, I'm really curious. Uh, in the original version, Scott Harvey, did you get the lines "Eat slowly or you'll get indigestion" 
countered with, I've never had indigestion in my life. I don't remember that. <laughs> That's uh, when they're trying to like force feed Lupin back to health. Um, and then the other one was game and saying, I should warn you, my sword is thirsty tonight. I don't remember See, that. What, it, what's funny today is that like, I don't even there. think these lines are that that crazy. I feel like people say corny either. shit all I think, the time. I think the indigestion one was the more ridiculous one. I'm just like, that just feels like such a random thing to throw in. Like we're talking about all these hijinks and it's turned into, you know, this bank robbing movie, which is now a global conspiracy. And we're taking a yeah. moment to pause and talk about, you know, our main character getting indigestion after he's recovering from like a life-threatening fall. I don't know. I thought it was really yeah. it, that just felt like I, one of those things that like four kids did when they dubbed a bunch of cartoons in the 2000s. Scott Harvey, you were about to say. Oh, I mean, yeah, I was just going to say it's possible that those were in there. I don't know if hearing them now, if they were memorable enough to where I'm like, oh, yeah, I definitely would have remembered like if that was in there. Like, it's possible that it was in there and it just like passed me by. Like, I don't know that the lines would have stood out to me so much that. Yeah, I'm, I anyway. mean, I, I think that it's like a. Uh... I don't know. The indigestion is... I, I do hear what you're saying, Jay. I feel like it's like there's probably some, like, Japanese cultural idiom where, like, that... It, like, it doesn't translate very well. Sure. But, like, there's, like, some, like, saying where it's, like, you know, you're gonna... You're not gonna feel well if you eat too fast, or, you know. Something like that, but... Sure, maybe. And I guess it's just a translation that I find funny. Again, in a movie where you talked about a guy, like, swimming upstream... Um, That'll cause indigestion, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Well, I'm just saying, yeah. like, he can do that, but he can't eat too fast. It seems like he can't eat too fast, though, because he, he pounded that food and he was fine. So he's got superpowers. Fair enough. Okay, well, <laughs> that's the least. I think, we've, I think we covered it. We've covered the dub and sub. <laughs> I think that's it. No. I, um, yeah, I thought it was fine. Like, I don't think it was anything super memorable or standout-ish. Like, I thought that my, my greatest fear always watching dubbed content is that it'll sound like because it often is this way that these people are like recorded separately right that they're like not all in the same room recording lines at the same time um and so it feels like sort of like on an island and i'm, I'm actually pretty sure that that's how most of these movies are are dubbed but I, so i think that like the bar that i that i set for these types of experiences are does it sound like these people are actually talking to each other or does it sound like they're all being recorded separately? And I think for the most part, it sounds like they're, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it, it like clears that bar. I think there's some moments where it's like, eh, I don't know, like the voice direction maybe was like a little off or something like that, where it didn't, didn't quite hit the right pitch and tone talking to each other. But for the most part, I think it did clear that bar. It wasn't something that stood out to me as I was watching it. Like I said, though, I sort of felt like I was turning my brain off getting to watch this movie. So I won't sit here and be like, I was so locked in, like analyzing the voice, the voice cast and like really dissecting the performances. Cause I just don't think it's that kind of movie and it's not trying to be that kind of movie. If it didn't stand out to you, that probably is a good thing, right? It probably means yeah. it wasn't bad. So um, I would take that as a positive. Man, there's some Dragon Ball episodes. I remember as a kid, that was just like, there's just, these people are not in, they're not even in the same <laughs> planet recording dialogue. Well, you know, guess what? We're still doing that in some of the biggest movies nowadays. So. Yeah, not the problem is that it's not even. Well, I guess some of those are voice roles, but some of those are like literally on set. Yeah, on set they're before. not even physically on <laughs> set at the same time. Um, yeah, yeah. I did want to ask you guys though about something that I said, sort of in the the intro, which is you know that maybe there you could think there's kind of a learning curve coming into this with not being familiar with loop and stuff. Um, and I think for all of us, we weren't really familiar with 
you know, any of the background here. And there are a lot of moving pieces. There are a lot of, you know, again, like Fujiko is a character who gets introduced and, you know, you kind of just have to figure out for yourself exactly who she is, because it does seem like at least on some level, they're kind of assuming that you might already know who she is from, um, other Lupin related stuff. And to, to the same extent, somewhat with like Zenigata. And obviously we're thrown right in with Lupin and, and Jigen. We don't really know much about their relationship. We learn a little bit about Lupin's background just as it relates to this place in Cagliostro and the fact that he went there 10 years ago and tried to, to rescue the treasure. Um, but did you guys feel like you were at any sort of disadvantage not being familiar with, you know, the lore, so to speak, of Lupin. Well, I will I will jump in first and say that I'm not specifically familiar with the lore of the Lupin manga, but I've played enough like modern cultural Japanese based video games where the characters of Lupin and Goemon and I think it's mainly those two, but also like the general trope of like someone like the inspector, Zenigata, like those characters have appeared in other like ace attorney is like a good example like those those like archetypes of characters have existed sometimes quite literally like named those things in in video games that i have played that are made by japanese game studios and so although i didn't have the specific lore knowledge my own experiences with like for the lack of a better way to put it like japanese culture made it so that i felt like okay yes like i don't know who this fujiko character is or I don't know who Zenigata is, or I don't know who Jigen is, but it's pretty easy to pick up, and it's impossible to separate the knowledge that I already have, so maybe Jay will be a better reference point, but I don't think that there's, like, maybe what the Fujiko character is, like, the is the best example, but, like, really beyond that, I don't really feel like there's, like, really ever a point in the movie, even if you're unfamiliar with all of these characters, that it's like, oh, man, I'm just missing some, like, really important information about that like i feel like i'm lost because of like again fujiko is like maybe the, the the character i'd point to where that it could be the most true but i didn't really feel like there was any sort of onus put on the viewer or at least me as a viewer to understand like exactly the backstory of these characters it's like kind of like a bond right like this person exists in many stories in many ways and like this is this is the the story that you're watching right now and like whether or not Casino Royale happened like five movies ago, like doesn't really matter for the most part. You know what I mean? They're like very standalone stories. Like, and I, and I felt not that way. Serialized, yeah. Yeah. They're procedural more than serialized to your point. Yeah. Jay, any thoughts on this particular question? Yeah. I don't think I had as much background context as Scott, certainly not having, you know, played those Japanese video games or, uh, you know, been exposed to, that other Japanese media. Jay's like, I'm not a fucking weeb. I watched a lot of Dragon Ball growing up. I, I was with you on that <laughs> yeah, part. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But no, and unfortunately, I have not uh, had the pleasure. That being said, I didn't feel like I was missing anything. I felt like the the pieces were all ones I'd seen before. I mean, you guys talked about it earlier. Like, you know, we have the inspector who's kind of chasing you. We have the rival thief. Again, maybe Fujiko is the one character where it's like, you know, there's there's clearly some backstory here that might have been really fun to see, but I think that's true for his uh, Lupin's relationship with you know Jigen, Inspector. Like, so I, I didn't think that I was really missing anything, and I didn't think the learning curve was too steep. I still think it was pretty accessible. 
um, as long as you've seen like some movies and again, you can just quickly latch on to like, again, person chasing me, you know, best friend who's like, any, like recurring, like character, like even if you just like read Sherlock Holmes, like you'd probably be like generally familiar with like the ideas that are, that are at play here. Even like Clarice, like in this story is like, she's a, a woman who is like ostensibly the love interest, right. Of Lupin as he tries to, you know, go through his, these particular misadventures that he's on here in the manga, she's his wife. Like she's just his wife in the manga. Like it's like a part of the crew. Like she, like this is almost like a prequel. Like the way mm -hmm. that I understood it after I went and looked up like the, the manga afterwards is like this movie sort of positions itself as almost like a prequel to maybe some of the more like tr like classic stories. Like if you, I was like looking at the plot summaries of some of the other like TV shows and and movies that have been made, and they're all like the Lupin gang, which is like Lupin, Goemon, Jigen, and Clarice. Like that is like the Lupin gang, is my understanding. Um, How old is Lupin supposed to be? I took it like 30, like 30-ish. Yeah, that 30s. feels about right, right? Like, yeah. I mean, so she, they think they said that she was 19 at the end of it. I was saying, <laughs> yeah, so you, like Scott, you were, Scott Harvey, you were saying he was there 10 years ago. He looked more or less the same. Yeah. Um, which makes me think he's at least 30 now. Probably a little Yeah, older. I mean, look, he was like probably a kid when he was there the first time and inexperienced and now he's like a veteran thief yeah but what you're saying there scott does kind of evoke mission impossible again it's like we're we're adding new people to the gang right as movies yeah. go on sure. right like you know 100 uh, we're adding our ilsas and um our whatever jeremy renner's name is brant um along he's the way him, but yeah yeah r.i.p to jeremy yeah. renner in his app um but uh yeah so he's still alive know. he didn't die in the snowball accident just for our listeners i was to, gonna say wondering. really poor choice of words <laughs> yeah, there scott yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I forgot he did almost die <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Died. um but no i think i think i agree with our you know our overall point here which is kind of that even if you're not familiar with these specific characters you've seen stories like this you've seen maybe archetypes like this um but yeah. it's not as as bad as that. I mean, that, that makes it sound kind of cliched and stereotypical, but I think they're very lively characters. And, you know, again, my, my reaction after the movie was over was like, man, I sure would like to see more of the, you know, more of these characters. And obviously yeah. there are, there is a lot of other opportunities for me to see these characters out there. I don't know if they would be as successful as, you know, something directed by quite possibly the greatest animation director of all time. Um, probably not. But, um, you know, in that regard, Miyazaki did a really good job of, um, I guess, even if you don't know anything about it, you get it, right? After it's over, I was like, yeah, like, I understand why this is a thing, because it's really enjoyable, and these are yeah, it's fun familiar. characters, even if it's not necessarily something new. Um, talking about the animation a little bit more, um, you know, I, I did want to ask you guys what you thought about it in general we, we did discuss it a little bit earlier but obviously this is a hand-drawn animation style we don't see this too much in animation nowadays um you know obviously most everything is done on computers now um but you know what do, what do you think um about it you know jay specifically i don't know if you have a lot of experience at all with seeing hand-drawn stuff um but you know, just in, in, in your first impression of it here in the series, we're going to see a lot more of it. But, you know, how does it compare to other animation styles that you may be more familiar with? Does it compare, you know, is it not really make a difference to you or, or are you more drawn to it or, you know, repelled by it? 
I'd say I was drawn to it. I really can't make too many comparisons to other animation styles, just not being as like well-versed um, in them. But I liked what you said earlier on where it just felt very timeless. Like I, I would believe you if you said this was, I think this, this came out in 1979, was it? Um, and I believe you, if you said it came out in 1999. I you know, might believe you if you said 2009 and someone was just using uh, you know, this particular animation style. I think it, I mean, to me, it feels very like, I mean, this, this is gonna sound really rudimentary, but storybook, right? Like I, I just feel like I'm like reading, like I don't wanna call it a kid's book cause I don't wanna sound like I'm uh, like diminishing it in any way, but it's, it's engaging, it feels fun. It just, I think it appeals to something like, again, I don't wanna say childish to make it sound like, you know, a lesser medium, it's not, but just it appeals to something you know, more childish in me that, you know, I, I find enjoyable. Yeah, there is a nostalgia to it, I think. Again, Scott mentions, like, watching Saturday morning cartoons and stuff like that. It does, at least for me, evoke the experience of watching certain cartoons, obviously, that were in this animation style, too. But, you know, there's just a lot of room for weirdness creativity you know it's funky it has like this really fun world and colors and everything to it um it, there there's just sort of a unique character to it that um i don't know i, I maybe it is just the nostalgia factor maybe it's just vibes for lack of a better word but i enjoy it a lot i think you know maybe by the end of this series i will be willing to go out on the ledge and say it's my preferred style of animation I think it's so. I mean, here's the thing about hand-drawn animation. I think that we haven't really sort of stated explicitly, but maybe it's sort of implicit. And what we're talking about is that it is more difficult to make an animated yeah. film in today, like in 2023, with it, when it's hand-drawn versus when it's computer-generated. Like it is fundamentally easier and therefore less expensive to make an animated film that is computer-generated versus drawing it by hand. I mean, I think I was just trying to. I was googling around here, just trying to see the most recent, like major like film animated film house making a hand-drawn animated film like besides ghibli right which had has had several hand-drawn animated films in the last decade but not even in the last decade the the best one i come up with was the princess and the frog which is a 2009 disney movie i think that's like the most recent hand-drawn animated film from a major you know whether it's like disney or pixar i mean obviously pixar doesn't do any hand-drawn animation but like disney or dreamworks or any sort of major recognizable animated studio in the west i th yeah i thought cartoon saloon for some reason did hand-drawn but maybe theirs are still no no ac no you're totally right actually yeah cartoon saloon okay. does do hand-drawn but i wouldn't even yeah. really call them like a major animation house sure but you know they're always getting nominated for stuff like and stuff like that no their movies right, are not they, as well they had like song of the sea and the tale of the princess kaguya and stuff like that but um well so yeah song of the sea is well, Tale of Princess Kaguya is, is Ghibli, but it's Studio Ghibli, right? Sorry, like yeah. the Book of Kells and stuff like that is also uh, yeah. Last Secret year's movie, there, My Father's Dragon, I think was a lot their right. movie last year. Um, but yeah, is, but yes, Cartoon right. is Irish. I'm pretty sure is they right. are. Yeah, they're Irish. Yeah, and I think they've done some of the like Star Wars Visions episodes too that are on Disney Plus. I think there's been some hand drawn ones. I mean, I think Ghibli did one too. Um, but but fun. your average consumer of animated films probably is not even familiar with more than one or two of those. So. So, but but I say that to say that like when you go 
when you one of the things that I think what I'm hearing you say Scott is that maybe it's my preferred animation style. I think a lot of like in terms of, like the average film that is hand drawn, like it's probably just going to be with more soul and more heart in the in the production because it's so much more onerous than making something. Not not that people who are making 3D like CG animation aren't, aren't pouring their heart and soul into their work, but I just think you see sort of the the fruits of the labor like a lot more clearly and hand-drawn animation i think part of that goes back to like sort of the timeless look and feel of it i think it i mean it definitely stirs some sort of nostalgia in me personally for those reasons we were talking about in terms of like saturday morning cartoons things like that but i also just think that the the quality of the animation is sort of it, it endures beyond like any trend or development in technology because of the nature of its production and so i think that it's a lot easier to go back and say does this look as good as like the crystal clear 3D animation of Soul in 2020? Like it looks different. It doesn't look as expensive as Soul, but so sort of this like baseline of like that is beautiful. Like that is just beautiful animation. And, and obviously there's cheaper and more expensive looking versions of every animation style, but I feel like hand-drawn animation as like a baseline is able to produce something that endures the test of time. Like it's going to look as good as it does when it is made um, and it will look that just as good, whether that's good or bad, right. It will look that at that level, like 20 to 30 years from now, because the style is sort of just, it, it just endures. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think you're probably right that some of my, you know, attraction to it is just the, the clear care that you can see yeah. in every frame. It's, look, it's no minions rise of group, but uh, it's something. Rest in peace, Alan Arkin. Um, sure. <laughs> Scott uh, and NJ, uh, I want to ask you guys maybe sort of as the final discussion point here, just sort of about the traditional, you know, movie elements of this, the plot, the action, you know, the music, which um, was not composed by Joe Hisaishi, who we will see, you know, is the name that pops up in most of the Studio Ghibli films and, you know, very, very iconic music um, in some of the movies that we're going to watch later. Um you know, do these traditional sort of elements work? Obviously, as far as the story's concerned, you know, we kind of have a big action climax. We have this great scene of the clock tower, right, where all the, the you know, major parties come together. Um, Lupin is able to to get away. We, we uncover the treasure, which turns out to be these, like, Roman ruins that were hidden. Um, a hilarious twist, it must yeah. be said. An underappreciated like gag. I feel like I'd be like, oh, the treasure is architecture. <laughs> Something that we can't do anything with. Like we cannot steal. Um, yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, what did you guys think about you know how the climax played out and just in general the you know these sort of traditional elements that we we like to talk about? I thought it played out well. Uh, I think, as I've said, there was just like a simplicity to it that I find. Like it's not overcomplicating anything. It's not trying to do too much, and it's doing you know all those like standard pieces we talked about really well. Um, you know the the idea of this this big climactic scene taking place like on a clock tower with the princess dangling off the edge. Like you know again very like stereotypical, but I think I, again the story itself just moved along very well. You know it's drawn in a fun, engaging way. Like I like I said i think at the beginning of this nothing like life-changing nothing that felt like it was really groundbreaking although maybe for the time you know perhaps a little less cliche but ultimately very fun the one uh 
uh, you know, traditional element that I'm very glad they <laughs> steered away from was at the end. I was very glad Lupin ultimately did not decide to end up with Clarice and was like, you're super young and have your whole life ahead of you and I am not that. I do wonder how we get from that to uh, her being his wife and you know, part of the gang, but maybe this isn't. Well, I just think it's. Like, I think that. I think it's not like that, right? I think it's just like sort of anthology. Like this movie is standalone. It's. It's just sort of like somebody getting getting trucked in to make a one-off Bond movie. Was it like the Lazenby Bond movie? Is like the uh, maybe the corollary. Just like we're gonna yeah, fire well, this one off. Right. Like you know the Bond movies. Like even within the same you know Roger Moore Bond movies or whatever. They're not really connected with each other even it's like oh well he's in love with this woman for this movie but she never pops up again there's no mention of her it's just like you know again it truly is it's its own thing perhaps i guess what feels a little different about this it is it is that it is the same character um like it is still clarice right who is sure. his wife and it's not like you know octopussy yeah. wasn't one and then not the next one i don't know why that's the one i picked i'm sorry I don't know the either. Most ridiculous name. I should have said yeah. Strawberry Fields or something. I think. But... Well, I think the thing you're missing is that like, they're the Bond movies are also novels, right? And like, I don't have the per, I don't have the personal sure. context to like go and read all the novels to see if the characters are the same and all that. You know what I mean? Like, do the adaptations into movies like actually match the characters, or is like they're a character who's Bond who is like Bond's significant partner who was murdered in one movie or in one book? Like, actually, his like random person he's interested in another in like a random movie. I, again, I'm just like saying. I think sure. that maybe exists in other stuff that I just don't have the context for. Sure. And this doesn't have to be a sticking point. If anything, I was just very much emphasizing that I'm glad that in this iteration of things where yeah. we made it very clear that she is 19 and he is at least 30, probably more like 35. Like Maybe he's know, 20. He Never know. He, he wasn't 10 when he showed up at Cagliostro in the flashback. Like, I don't know, man. You don't choose the thief this. life. The thief life chooses you. He didn't look 10. That's all I'll say. Um, but he, <laughs> Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I was I was glad they didn't keep that one piece, but all the other elements again I thought flowed very seamlessly uh, and were like very fun. So hats off from me. Yeah, look, I I enjoyed the the overall structure of the movie, the plot. Again, I, I sort of liked how it sort of dropped you into it. I would have loved a little bit more from the casino heist starting out, and maybe in like a different movie, you got in a little bit uh, a little bit more of an extended like caper sequence to open the film. I think that would have been fun, but the yeah. fact that it gets going so quickly and you're, you know, three minutes into the movie, you're in the grand duchy of Cagliostro. I think that that works fine. I think there's, it builds up a nice mystery of like what actually happened to this sort of aging, fantastical, like, you know, fictional country in, I mean, ostensibly what, like central Europe. It's like set in like central Europe somewhere, probably. So yeah, is, we is it just Andorra? <laughs> We get the one scene of like all the Interpol or like, you know, whatever it yeah. is, like talking about talking about like sort of its standing in the world. But yeah, that's kind of the vibes that I get. Yeah, it, it has some sort of like Italy adjacent vibe to it. I feel I feel like. Um, yeah, because you have that. I, I really like that scene like early on when they first get there and they're like going through like the abandoned palace or whatever. Yeah. And, and there's like the guy there that's like, the sweeping up or whatever and he's like yeah i don't nobody really knows exactly what happened. like it, it sets a nice air of mystery like from the beginning yeah totally and and it, and <laughs> it sort of by gets you bought into the world i mean one of the things that i think we'll talk about as the movies go on is a lot of you know the miyazaki movies are set in these sort of fantasy worlds or at least partially set in some sort of fantasy world and i think that 
I you get a there's like just a little bit of that flavor in this movie. I think early on when there's this you're you're exploring this sort of fictional place that has you know it's not it's it's not literally fantastical because it is grounded um you know within within the you know quote unquote real real world or unidentifiable world similar to our own but i i think that sort of mystery involved with not knowing what happened in these sort of ruins of of the actual you know palace or whatever i think it works really well and and obviously the fact that they're hunting for this treasure that is you know, we find out to be, you know, these archaeological ruins. I think that adds to the flavor of everything and creates this this nice mystery around the world. But it doesn't really ever lag. Like, I, I mean, Jay was talking at the outset around, like, it's hard to fault any movie for being under 100 minutes. And I know I just said maybe flesh out the opening part and add a little bit more flair to the opening caper. But at the same time, like, I think the movie is paced nicely. You know, maybe I think it actually could have been even a little bit shorter. I think there's some parts in the middle sort of after they break into the castle, but like getting up to Clarice's um, like the top of her tower the first time. There's like some stuff in there that I think maybe slowed the pace down a little bit more than it needed to. Um, But at the same time, like that's a small complaint. It's not as it's not really that serious of a complaint overall. And I just I really enjoyed the the pace at which most of the movie was was sort of going at and the fact that it drops you in quickly the fact that it sets you up like they got to figure out how they're going to break into the palace i think one of the the only weird parts of the movie is that i feel like they call in goemon really early in the film and the man is like on the sidelines for like 60 to 70 minutes of the movie <laughs> mm-hmm. and i didn't really know why they had to introduce him i mean like i know why they had to introduce him so early in the movie because like He's part of the manga. He's part of the crew. You got to get him in here. But the man is just like on the opposite side of the water on lookout duty for 45 minutes. Like he's over there scouting for a while before he goes and informs them that um, his blade is thirsty or whatever Jay had said earlier. Um, And, you know, I think a line like that's pretty cool personally. And I hope that's what they said in the original Japanese. Yeah, I wish I could remember, but uh, that will just remain a mystery, I guess, to be uncovered later in the series. Uh, sure, sure. I will say the, the only the only other note that I might give because I I feel like I'm maybe focusing too much on like little small negative things, but I I really did enjoy the the film overall. But I do think like it's the '70s, it's fantasy tropes, whatever. Like I I do think the whole like princess damsel in distress stuff is like a little bit eye rolly in the movie. Mm-hmm. I think we all just have to acknowledge that. I don't even mean that as like a serious critique of the film, but like I also just like as that sort of developed, I was like, okay, I can definitely turn my brain off for this movie. Like I don't have to think too hard about this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's nothing other than that last reveal that we're talking about. There's nothing like surprising really about the way that the plot plays out. And, and, you know, like we were talking about with the characters earlier, there is some archetypal, archetypal quality to them right which means you know we have seen this before in in some way so um it's not completely fresh like some of the movies that we'll we'll see later but scott you know you mentioned something else too which is um that this world is perhaps just a bit more grounded than some of the fantasy worlds that you're going to see in um, a lot of his other movies and i mean um, yeah maybe not to spoil too much but the next two movies we talk about definitely set in fantasy worlds Yes. Um, I think uh, that, you know, me being me, I'm more drawn to the 
more grounded stuff a lot. I've never been a big fantasy person. And I think a lot of our, the films, which I enjoy the most out of Miyazaki's um, work are the ones that are light on, you know, the, the heavy fantasy elements. Sure. Um, so maybe that's why I, I had such a great time with this um, because I, I did feel like there's not a whole lot that, you know, gets outside that realm. Um, but yeah, so that, that that's something else. That's a conversation which we'll revisit because I think there obviously are some movies that are, you know, like Nausicaa, which we're going to watch next, like Princess Mononoke, right, which are just full tilt, you know, full send on the, the fantasy elements. Um, and then there is some more laid backs like, like My Neighbor Totoro, like Kiki, uh, Kiki's Delivery yeah. Service. Yeah. Um, so um, we, we'll, we'll get both flavors before the series is over. But this obviously falls very, very far on the, the light fantasy, if fantasy at all, spectrum. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's very like interesting not to, you know, look too far ahead, but it seems like, you know, the, I mean, obviously he was, he, he was involved in many animation projects before the Castle of Cagliostro. And, uh, but this obviously is his first directorial uh, role, but like, it's funny to see this and then like juxtaposed with his most recent movie before this, the wind rises are like the two, like least fantasy movies in his arsenal. And I could be wrong about what the boy and the heron is going to be, but I, I have a feeling that's also not going to be heavily fantasy based. So it's just interesting to see how you start your career. Maybe you go on these, you know, endeavors in fantasy, but he, he comes back to these more real, real world grounded stories at the end of his career. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, the wind rises definitely, like you say, falls. And it's a biopic. The, it's so, a biopic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, a conversation that we'll have going forward. But, all right, guys, I think we can probably move into the wrap up now for this film. Um, we'll start with Jay. What is your favorite scene or moment from this film? I think it would have to be when the inspector uh, accidentally finds evidence of the counterfeiting. You know, we're about to go into our final set piece and he's like, I'm just here and look what I've discovered. Oh my yes. God. Like, <laughs> Hamming so... it up for the TV camera. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, it was so campy. But and then I, it's like, I... it's like cutting over to like the, the it's, I don't know if it's Interpol or like the like corrupt business or pop and political like, figures. Ugh. And they're like, we'll never be able to cover this up now. <laughs> yep. Again, the, the camp was just so over the top, but I loved it. I got to say, I'm not sure how uh, this counterfeiting ring was ever able to be so successful, given that every character in the movie, when they see the bills, are like, these are the best counterfeits I've ever seen. But... I did. Honestly, I thought that as soon <laughs> yeah. as like in the very first scene where he's just like, they're just the car is literally full of money and he's driving. and He just looks down and like, well, this is counterfeit, I guess. Yep. <laughs> I did so, not notice it before, too, but yeah. 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 It's like you're looking at them more closely now when you're driving on the interstate than you were before. <laughs> like, <laughs> who's to say? But that being said, the, the exposing of the counterfeiting ring, definitely my favorite uh, scene. Yeah, that's the funniest really, part in the movie for sure. Yeah. That's definitely, yeah, I definitely agree. Funny, very funny there. I, I was leaning towards that scene as well, but I was choosing between another one. And it's, it's less, I mean, it is the scene where he first gets to the tower with um with Clarice for the first time and then you have this sort of confrontation between him and these like very weird ninja henchmen with like the the sword fingers man yeah what were whoa those? 
but it's like not explained they barely show up again in the movie but it's really cool yeah. oh they show up all the time what are you talking about they're like well, they, yeah, they were okay. all they, over the place they are, yeah. they are around you're right you're right yeah it, it's like one of those things when you're playing the video like i feel like there's like a spider-man video game when i was growing up that like acknowledged how crazy this like concept of like why are there so many bad guys everywhere like where do you get all of these mm-hmm. bad guys from and i'm just sitting here and be like where do they get all these ninjas from like where are they coming from this is like an empty countryside. Like countries is just importing them from outside the country and bringing them in. I guess he is. But I, I like the scene um, where he sort of has this sort of first face-to-face standoff with uh, between Lupin and the Count. I like that scene. Also, one of the a related part of that, so funny to me, like how long has Fujiko just like been chilling in the duchy? Well, because like, it's like a very strange timing because it seems like Clarice has only been there for a few days and like Fujiko is her like like ma- like lady in waiting sort of like butler type person and I'm just like how did these things come together so quickly and so precisely I just thought it was very I don't mean that as a critique I think it's funny I think it's just like how did she get in there so fast and why do they trust her yeah yeah uh, other things that aren't really explained but yeah yeah you you accept it you accept it it's no it, yeah exactly i accept it and, and i laugh about it because it's funny it's mm-hmm. not like a critique of the film talking about also funny um and again i really enjoyed the zenigata character as well i guess for my moment i'll put a point out right at the end when um you know he's been helping lupin for most of the movie and then you know as lupin is getting away he decides he's going to resume his quest of trying to chase down lupin and you know clarice kind of tries to to stop him a little bit and um, you know, basically saying like, well, he didn't, he didn't really do anything. Um, and he mm-hmm. says that, no, you know, he stole your heart, right? Yeah, like, that <laughs> not that he stole the treasure or anything like that, yeah. but he stole, you know, he stole your heart or whatever. Just like a very funny, cheesy line. That's some like Japanese yeah. anime shit right there. Yeah. That, there's, there's your like anime stuff going on. Let him cook. Yeah. But that was a lot of fun. And again, kind of made me want to see more from the characters going forward. But yeah. Yeah. All right, let's put a score on it. Jay, what do you give The Castle of Cagliostro out of 10? It's an 8.0 for me, Scott. Uh, like I said, super easy watch. Don't know how you couldn't enjoy it. And strong start countdown. Excited to see what comes next. 7.5 for me. Very enjoyable. Uh, not something I think I'm going to remember that much by the end of the series. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll come back in our retrospective episode and be like, actually, maybe this was more memorable than I thought it was. But I think this is something that I certainly enjoyed. Yeah, I'm the highest. I'm giving it an 8.6. I really enjoyed it. Um, I think for what it is, it's about the most enjoyable version of that. Um, so I I had a blast watching it. And yeah, I could definitely see myself coming back to it in the future. Um, just just a really fun time and a great way to kick off the countdown. I definitely think that one of the things that you said at the, be- at the beginning of your general thoughts around like, oh, I just wish they were like, I just wanted to watch a ton more of these. I mean, this is one yeah. of the things that I was saying to Jay yesterday when, when we saw each other is that like, I sort of watched this movie and I'm just like, why don't we just have like a thousand of these? Like, why don't we just have like one of these like every week to pop on? You know I mean? Like, obviously that's, that's hyperbole, but it's just so easy to, to turn your brain off and watch. Like I've said several times on the podcast already and, you know, really enjoyable. All right, guys. Well, that concludes our review of The Castle of Cagliostro and concludes part one of the Miyazaki Countdown. Of course, much more to come in this series. We hope you'll stay tuned for that. 
Of course, we hope you'll check out our other podcast as well, Some Like It, Scott, in which we're reviewing all the new releases. Um, it's right here in the same feed where you found this episode. Uh, don't forget to like, rate, review, subscribe. Subscribe to our Patreon as well at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Um, but even if you can't support us over there, uh, we hope you'll be back for the next episode of The Countdown, on which we will be reviewing Miyazaki's last pre-Studio Ghibli effort, the 1984 post-apocalyptic fantasy Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. But until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.